Hi, and welcome to another edition of Dr. Doc After Dark, number 22, discussions with Tim Boyd, otherwise known as Apollo Trading SD on Twitter. So Tim is based on the west coast of US. He's uh, ex-Bridgewater, so has worked in a huge uh, hedge fund before, and also a research analyst. And now he's running his own uh, Apollo Trading Club, which we'll hear a, a bit about later. And mission is really trying to help the 99% succeed, which I think is a very admirable one. Uh, Tim's very outspoken on Twitter. Uh, he never minces his words, so this should be a fun conversation. This is my first one that's going to have an explicit lyrics warning on it. So this is definitely almost certainly going to be not safe for work or not safe for kids. Um, as always, it's not investment advice. Please do your own research and let's get to it. Tim, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you very much. How, how the hell are you? I'm, I'm thinking not much going on right now. So this could be a tricky conversation. Um, <laughs> so just so people know it's uh, in the U S let's just go U S time. It, it's uh it's Tuesday, the 21st of July, the kind of yes, the day yes. where every single asset class in the multiverse went up. So if you lost money today, day. you might want to think about what your portfolio is. It was, as, uh, as Keith McCall likes to say, it, it was not a day to do nothing. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you, you were either positioned properly for today or you better be positioned properly going forward after today. I mean, you, uh, there, listen, you have a parabolic move in silver. You have, what's the term? I think Raul Powell called it, you know, being short gamma when you have a move like that. Yep. Uh, so you're going to have people chasing here for a while. I would imagine that the bullion banks are probably in trouble <laughs> and have a short position to cover. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, at this point, is there anyone not looking for a dip to buy in silver? It's actually interesting. So um, yeah, Raul has also... He, he's been kind of very long gold for a long time, um, but right. just in the last kind of 24 hours has shifted on silver to kind of get in with that. Yeah, as you say, that exact argument. But surely the bullion banks, I mean, you're one of the leading proponents of the, the, the bullion banks are going to try and fuck you theory. Um, so surely they're going to have to try and do something on the silver price. Uh, you know, uh, just in terms of maybe the, for the people out there that aren't familiar with... Um, the, the bullion bank <laughs> screw over uh, theory. Uh, the basic idea is that you have um, all these bullion banks that store physical gold throughout the world. And because they have gold coming in and out, they basically have been given the ability by the COMEX to print their own futures contracts. Um, and of course, this is not something that, as far as I understand, it's not something that the COMEX supervises very, <laughs> very uh, sharply. So there's really no way to know that these guys aren't just printing up futures that have no gold or silver backing them at all and dumping them on the market, you know, for phantom supply. Now, the fact that, uh, the fact that this happens to most of the time uh, be aligned with central bank's goals. Because, I mean, we're in a fiat universe, right? And if I'm a central banker in a fiat country and I see a hard asset like gold or silver appreciating very quickly, that's going to make me very nervous. I, I don't want to leave any, any of the exits open. Um, and effectively, it's been in the interest of central banks for years and years now, uh, decades, in fact, really since 1971, uh, the Nixon shock. Uh, when he took us off of the, the Bretton Woods, the convertibility to gold was taken away. Um, 
the Fed and other central banks, it has been in their interest to make sure that gold and silver do not appreciate too quickly. So the fact that that's, that's really the conspiracy theory part of it. The fact that bullion banks do this paper dumping is, is a matter of record. It's fact. Uh, the fact that maybe the central banks are backing them in that effort or uh, potentially even paying them to do that, that's, that's the conspiracy theory. But right. just right. having watched, and I think we actually, we were on Twitter one morning and, and I think I had told everyone, you know, hey, if, at 5.30 my time, you're going to see gold dump. <laughs> yeah, I do I mean, remember this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have they have the same pattern. Uh, and it's really just like price action that you only normally see during panics, but it's taking place uh, multiple times a week. So the price action definitely confirms uh, this notion that the the banks are bullion banks are unscrupulously dumping paper gold. Um, but that being said, I think, you know, again, if you're the Fed, and I tweeted this yesterday, you can have strong stocks or weak precious metals, but not both. Uh, and from their point of view, we are n- they're now in a place where they, they just know that, hey, we have to make sure the stock market remains healthy. We have a consumer under pressure. We have high unemployment. The stock market is a very important source of co- discretionary spending. Uh, so I think they basically have looked at the gold and silver market and said, we're fine with it appreciating as long as it all doesn't happen too quickly. So I right. think you'll so, still see a gradual rate of ascent uh, and the occasional painful dump. So if you're not in this trade already, just just wait wait for that day that that's down three or four percent for the bloodbath, and that's when you buy in. Uh, I would not be chasing silver after right. A day like so today. so a couple of points. One is that three or four percent. That's probably for silver, right? Uh, gold will probably go yeah, generally yeah, correct less. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could see see gold uh, have a down 2% day or something like that. Yeah. But yes, I was thinking specifically of silver. Um, the, the thing I want to dive into, though, is, so I want to challenge you on one of your points. So I, I, I've got no fight in this conspiracy theory, not theory, whatever. Like, it clearly, there are dumps which make no sense. I mean, I've seen that with my mm-hmm. own eyes in real time talking with you before. And um, But like, if, if I'm a bullion bank, I mean, it's futures contracts. Like, they're not backed by anything anyway. Like, I mean, if you buy S&P or sell an S&P futures contract, at the end of the day, when the futures contract is due, you're going to have to, so for physical futures contracts, you're going to have to either accept delivery or provide delivery of the underlying. So the bit I've never really understood is every day when you're trading GC or whatever, you're in effect printing, you're buying or selling paper gold. So why is it any different when the bullion banks are doing it? I mean, it's at the end of the day, uh, you know, every futures market, every physical commodity futures market has the ability to become a kind of Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme. Uh, you know, theoretically, there should only be as much paper gold as there is physical gold bullion in the world. But these banks have figured out, I think they figured out long ago, that if they're, if they're maybe to kind of like front run the next five to 10 years of gold production and, and issue more, uh, the, the chances of everyone getting called at once, so the chances of them having to actually deliver all of that gold at once is, is virtually nil. It's, it's never going to happen. Um, so at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, there's, there's a, they've been left a lot of wiggle room to behave badly, let's put it that way. And as I said, um, it's in, for the, for the longest time, it's been in central banks' interest to let them do that, uh, which is why 
you know, you, you rarely see. I mean, we had what one instance last year of a JP Morgan trader getting in trouble, but you, you really don't see many people actually getting pinched for this kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, you're right. Like S&P futures, they, they cash settle. Gold futures obviously are, you know, there, there is a deliver, de deliverable amount of gold. You are supposed to deliver 100 ounces of gold um, at, you know, after the expiration date. And if, if all of those, uh, if the owners of GC contracts were to stand for delivery, like yeah. let's just say the August futures, they, everyone that owned one was actually, instead of just dumping it and closing it out, actually took delivery, there would be a shortage uh, there are some people who would not get their order filled. Let's put it that way. There'd be some people standing there saying, where's my gold? And there isn't any. And this happened, right? In, um, in Famously in March or April, I can't remember exactly, but it was because of the, um, because physically they couldn't deliver the bars from London to New York. And then of course you had the, because you know there's a lot of gold stored in um, London, but they're stored in 400 ounce bars in London, not the 100 ounce Comex right. ones. And so then they have to get melted down. <laughs> and then of course right. there was no one working in the foundries to melt it. So you got this hilarious situation when th that that contract for gold was what like 80 bucks higher than spot or even 100 bucks. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, you got way ahead. <laughs> yeah, and then and then we had the oil stuff that kind of made everyone forget about the gold thing. So. You know, net negative $40 oil tends to be headlined. But Chris, are you suggesting that the oil dive was a cover-up? Well, actually, I think it was. Um, so <laughs> I did a lot of research on it. And a lot of it comes from a Chinese bank um, who had a gigantic position. And then they suddenly realized they had absolutely no way of, um, so if you get it the right way around, so they, they couldn't, they suddenly realized they couldn't pay for the, get the storage they needed. Um, mm. And it, it was a giant position, right? And this is fairly well documented. Um, and look, I get the whole data out of China. Everyone can have a view on, you know, whether they believe it or not, but like, but actually this was a position they had with the CFTC would have known about. So, um, uh, and so, yeah, and then it was just a massive squeeze, right? So yeah. Hey, but then, you know, right. the next month, of course, it was pretty obvious it wasn't going to happen again, but of course, lots of people assumed it would, and then they all got wrecked. So um, that's been a painful bet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I see a lot on on Twitter. Like, because that happened once, people assume it will happen again, and it's like this is a trillion and a half dollar market, like in terms of just physical and with oil, and yeah, you know, people are not going to let that happen again. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, it's the kind of thing you probably. We see once in your lifetime, and if Correct. you're exceptionally lucky, second time. Exactly. It's funny because when that happened, when that I was actually making phone calls, <laughs> thinking to myself, "What does it take to take delivery of?" Uh, I think it's what the, the the mini contract. I think is what it's five thousand barrels. No, it's five hundred. The the, the well, I was actually on the phone with some of my my well financed friends, thinking <laughs> like, "We should take delivery <laughs> of one of these contracts. What do we need?" to do and of course it turned out that that what we needed to do was incredibly cost prohibitive not to mention the regulatory element would have taken months to, well you to should have called me up because my uh one of my relatives she uh used to work in a well she still does but she used to work at a different bulge bracket a u.s firm but she was in london and uh, uh 12 years ago when you had the oil um oil go down a ton um, you know, when it went from yeah. 130, 140 down to like 25 or whatever it was. Uh, and this was before a lot of the changes to banking. 
um, they were looking at, and they, I think they actually did end up mooring a super tanker off the coast of Wales um, and filled it up. <laughs> um, and so she yeah, had to I mean, do the was, uh, risk assessment talking, for this. Yeah. yeah. You were talking about a lot of free money there. Uh, uh, it was, they made a killing. Um, yeah. Now, banks can't do that these days, but like that, that's the type of, your logic was sound. Um, it's just, you can't pump it into a swimming pool, so. <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, the uh, I, even under someone like Trump, the environmental uh, hurdles were significantly high. Uh, would have taken would have would have taken quite a bit of money just to get set up. And once we realized that, uh, you know, it was kind of obvious that this super contango wasn't going to last more than a few days or a week at most. So it became pretty clear very quickly that this was a no go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've got a one of the things that has piqued my interest is. On, on Twitter, you, you've got a lot of interesting, like, kind of endgame theories. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to debate them. And I think the one that has caught people's imagination is that the stock market is a matter of national security, and potentially not just in the US, potentially in China too. Um, I mean, I don't know how much you, you want to focus on US, that's fine. But, like, do you want to just talk people through this? Yeah, I mean, it's. To be honest, it's an idea that I came across in, um, it was actually on Twitter, um, on a thread that involved uh, Nomi Prinz, the author. Um, and she, she was really the one, or at least one of her readers, I forget exactly, kind of floated this idea that the stock market, uh, and, and she was basing this on her book, um, Collusion, which is a great read. I highly recommend it. Um, it basically goes, uh, over how the Fed dealt with all the other central banks in the world uh, after the housing crisis. And it just depicts them as an enormous bully. Um, so this notion that, um, that the stock market is a, is a matter of national security, and I think it really took the rise of China uh, for the government to start thinking about it like that. Because let's go back to the, the, the waning days of the Cold War. When Reagan took office, the economy was a mess and the stock market was a mess. Uh, and it had just come out of one of its worst decades in quite a while. Uh, and it was really right after Volcker broke inflation um, that the market really started to rip. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that huge boom in the market in the 80s coincided with us defeating the Soviet Union, us putting them to bed once and for all. Now, in the case of the Soviet Union, they were a, uh, a very doctrinaire communist nation. They didn't have a stock market. China, I think, has learned a lot from the Soviet Union's mistakes. They have a vibrant stock market. They're like this weird authoritarian communist capitalist hybrid. Um, and you know, our ability in the 80s to create wealth and then use it to spark uh, a big step function in an arms race and force our enemy to try to play catch up, which is ultimately what broke them, right? Um, <clears throat> the same thing is going on now, except that we have a much cagier opponent. Um, so at the end of the day, this is really just about uh, creating wealth um, and then keeping that wealth uh, extant, uh, as it were. Um, the ability just to fund military growth, the ability to fund R&D from military, you know, a lot of it is just going to come right out of the stock market. It's an easy place to look. And God, God only knows 
what the treasury actually holds on its balance sheet. I mean, if I'm if I'm if I'm the you know the president or the tre or the secretary of the treasury or whatever, and I've got a war that I need to fund, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say, let's buy up a bunch of S and P futures and have the Fed print money. Boom, we've got. I mean, that's just really because money does grow on trees. Now we all know that, right? Yep. Um, you know, modern monetary theory is not something that we're going to see in the future. It is here today. We are already in the midst of it. And we are absolutely going to use it uh, to fund our, our battles and our wars here in this Cold War with China. Um, I don't know if that's a good enough explanation. Um, I, I really, I look at it as a parallel to the 80s with the way that we kind of disposed of the Soviet Union by jacking our market through the roof, forcing them to try to play catch up on military spending, and that eventually broke them. We're not going to be able to do that this time around. It's going right, to be a much the, longer battle. Right. So I think there's some interesting points here, right? So first of all, China's very well known for being for studying the failures of the USSR a lot. So it's been very, very um, diligent at studying that. Um, also, uh, if the population of Russia is roughly three times less than the US, population of China is four times more. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, India and China will have higher GDPs than America. Uh, it's going to happen right. at some point. So to me, this all just seems like another, like the inevitable thing will happen someday, which is, and in a hundred years, who knows if India or China has a larger economy. Um, but the, the first one to overtake US in actual, not in PPP, but in actual US dollar terms will be China, almost certainly. And then you have an entire, you know, you just have an entirely different complexion on, on everything. And, and w whether that happens in 10 years or 20 years, 30 years, I don't know. Um, but um, it, it just feels that, I, I don't know if this is the eighth innings or the nine innings, but, you know, powers tend to, great powers of the world tend to ebb and flow over a kind of 150 to 200 year timescale. That, that's relatively mm -hmm. aligned with reserve currency status too. These things tend to end with wars. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But again, a war now could be a cyber war. Look what's happening now with TikTok. And, you know, the, the, there's going to be... Uh, yeah, I was just talking to, I was just talking to someone earlier about the fact that, you know, even though uh, in the Cold, the, the Cold War officially started, the, the last Cold War started in, you know, uh, June of 45. Well, I guess actually August of 45 after the, drop, the bombs were dropped yep. uh, on Japan. Um, and at that time, nuclear weapons were, I mean, these were, this was a, a novelty. Uh, mankind was kind of just beginning to cope with the knowledge that it could end its existence within a matter of minutes. Yep. Now it's kind of like everyone, everyone's just like, yeah, yeah, nuclear weapons, whatever. No one's ever going to actually use them. Even though we and China have, you know, the thermonuclear warheads that we have now are light years more advanced than what we had back in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, but it just kind of seems like there's, uh, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like there's zero chance of a nuclear exchange. And I obviously wasn't alive in 60, uh, 62 with the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah, yeah. but I would imagine that that felt pretty imminent. Yeah, so um, and yeah. one thing is that, so... Uh, weapons now, they are much more advanced and obviously, but they're actually um, smaller. So their payloads are vastly lower. Much smaller, yeah. 
So well, you have dial, what's called dial a yield with a lot of these things. Yes. So, so but, they but, can but, actually. Yeah, but you can't dial them up to like 50 megatons. The dial a yields are kind no, of. I think, I think the I biggest one in be... the US arsenal is three megatons right. right now. And so the biggest ever, the Saar bomber was, um, Saar bomb was 50, um, megatons. 50 megatons. And, um, but the dialer, dialer ones, I think I'm right in saying is you can dial the number of um, basically how many um, thousands of, um, sorry, not thousands, but how many hundreds of kilotons you want or Kilo tens of kilotons. Right, yeah. So, but, but to your point though, but now weapons are, th they would be impossible to intercept. So even the US, which be, does right. have the only genuine kind of interception system, if, if someone sent 500 multiple to MIRVs at the same time that each have several warheads in, there's absolutely zero. I love choice. that you use the word MIRV. Right. So <laughs> MIRV, the multiple independent re-entry exactly. vehicle. So the point so is, is now it, there's zero chance anyone could stop. Let's just say US, Russia and China who, and US and Russia still have massively more nukes than China. It's about five times more, but China's yeah. got enough. And then you've got a big gap to like the US, France, Israel and others. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, to see, I, I think there's as close to zero chances. I mean, it's never zero, right? But, but yeah, the I mean, it's the thing you worry about. going to be a cyber, a cyber thing. And, and this starts to link to money. It links to data. It links to all the new currencies that matter. Right. Exactly. And I mean, ultimately, the, the weapons that we have now can be uh, quite devastating over the over a longer period. Obviously, we don't have the I don't think it's going to be a situation where we're vaporizing our enemies in a matter of seconds. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it just seems like the nuclear question is just off the table entirely. And, and that's and that's a great thing. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it, it's something that our grandparents and, and even our parents uh, would have loved to have, especially was it, I guess it was October of 62. That must have been terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Yep. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, as you just met, mentioned, as you just pointed out, this is about, this is about cyber warfare, uh, just about IP in general. Um, yeah, everything is just about information at this point. It, I'll be honest, like, and, and I, I'm not American, I'm not Chinese, I'm British, and like, obviously the Brits saw their empire fall and really the final nail was the two wars um luckily right. there hasn't been any world wars since it just feels to me this is the last you know we're in the latter part of um, you know, america's not going to be the preeminent power forever i mean that's one certainty right. um whether it's going to be for another 100 years 200 years i don't know but it feels to me it's th there's going to be two guys in town um mm -hmm. and no power ever likes that the uk didn't have any choice um, because of the wars and, and clearly America's involvement was very, very important. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it feels yeah, everything. It's just like everything that's going on right now, whether it's central banks or, and it's happening all over the world. Like everyone's just trying to kick the can, like Europe just did this deal yesterday, right? Well, okay. But it's just more deficit, more debt. It's going to weigh on all countries for longer, um, screw people in the future more. It's, I mean, I, I look at it like, you know, like it, it's kind of, crazy I look at it as if, I'm, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, no one seems to care apart from a small group of us on FinTwit who are just in each other's echo chamber. <laughs> and, and, well, you know, <laughs> we are the, we are the true think tank uh, of <laughs> world affairs, as you know, but I, I, I liken what we're doing like monetarily and fiscally to uh, like a college professor. Oh, actually let's dial it down a bit. 
just like a high school teacher who gives his students a month to write a paper, knowing damn well they're going to wait till the last 36 hours to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the, for, the last, for the last many years, at least since 2008, we've all known, well, not, we all have not known, but those who took the time to kind of step back and think about it have known that modern monetary theory was coming. Uh, and it was just going to be a question of how long we could procrastinate. Um, but, and, and we are, I mean, this is, this is a, an incredibly important moment in time where no one knows what's going to happen when the printing presses have run freely and at full blast for an extended period of time. And I think, if anything, there's probably a little, too, little much, uh, too much confidence out there that we won't be generating bad inflation just because of the fact that, you know, if, at least if you go by the, the hedonized government data for inflation over the last 10 years, uh, there wasn't very much. Um, we can have a discussion about real inflation and how it affected cost of living for the middle class another time. But, um, you know, if I'm the Fed or if, if I'm a central banker, if, but more importantly, if I'm a politician, I'm looking at the 2010s and saying, we just printed a bunch of money and it didn't do anything to inflation. Let's keep it going. Let's crank it up another notch. So you can kind of already see the end game for modern monetary theory will be politicians finally pushing it too far. <laughs> and we end up with a, well, the period of hyperinflation and we get an interest rate spike and probably the worst, uh, the worst you know, recession since I would imagine I, mean, I, I feel like people, people compare things to the Great Depression too often. It's too easy a comparison. Let's be honest. We, since the Great Depression, there's been nothing even remotely close to it. Right. But that being said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very, very bad. But I, right now, I feel like everything is kind of wide open. We're going to print money like crazy. And the question that I have, how long does it take the, the, the average American to figure out, wait a minute, We've printed $8 trillion to prop up the stock market, but they're not sure that they want to give me 600 a week for unemployment. Right, so let's, how long let's, does it take a crit Yeah, let's dive into that. That's, that's really interesting because it's very topical today as well. So, right. um, so today, Mitch McConnell, who must, he must have two, he must have like an angel and a devil on his shoulder right now, right? I mean, he obviously wants Trump to win, <laughs> but he obviously, obviously, obviously doesn't want to lose the Senate. Um, you know, if you lose the Senate, House and presidency, you're toast in US politics, right? So, um, and so... Well, that's when things actually get done. Well, <laughs> true. I mean, Trump had two years of it and Obama had two years of it, right? So, but, but it tends to mean revert fairly quickly. And I think it's actually quite a clever system in some ways, but let's not go into the system. But like, but today he's, he, he's clearly started moving towards the Pelosi's, um, um, she wants what, three, three and a half trillion or whatever, sending out more yep. checks, but they might be smaller checks and maybe to people with slightly have a lower income limit. How they know that, I don't know. I mean, they sent a bunch of checks to dead people last time, but, um, but like with the election coming True. up, surely what's your view on all this? Like, it just feels like it, surely this round of stimulus is ultimately just going to be a giant political game of who's got the actual Trump card. Yeah. And you know, stimulus, uh, in, in times, uh, when the economy is struggling and, and Congress is weighing stimulus, it, it historically has been a pretty bipartisan thing. Because at the end of the day, the, regardless of what party the, 
the congressman or the senator is in, they still have to go home and explain themselves to their constituents. So it, it, it's, it tends to be fairly bipartisan. And I think in this case, uh, as in many past cases, you're going to see them find a way to meet in the middle yeah. uh, and make sure that they can go home to their constituents and say, see, see what we did. We, we, we acted boldly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're obviously, it's amazing. We're talking about a difference of two and a half trillion dollars. And I don't know about you, but I saw, I saw that mountain. I was like, that's not even that much. You know what's funny was, <laughs> I mean, can you remember when Up came and it was 700 billion? And, and basically, if, 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 the, if you've read the book that Tim Geithner wrote, what the feedback he got was just make it a number that's not a trillion because a trillion sounds too big right. and scary. And now yeah. well, that's, people yeah. think a trillion is like pocket change. It, it, well, obviously, you know, if you're going to just do it in, in, in absolute, you know, imagine a pile of a trillion dollars uh, that that's going to inspire awe, no question. When you look at it relative to the amounts that have been uh, taken on as debt or spent propping up the market or spent buying uh, JNK and HYG and stuff like that, that that's when you start to realize we're just we're in a world now where these numbers are the new normal, um, and and it's it's already as I said I'm I'm sitting here, okay the Democrats want three and a half trillion the Republicans want one trillion that's two and a half trillion difference right there that's no big deal, so even even th those of us that at least pay attention to this stuff on a daily basis we've already been conditioned to think of, uh, right. you know thirteen figures as nothing. But do you think Pelosi is going to use this to get, because in America they do something that. I don't think happens as much in say Europe, but it does happen a bit where you put a bill through and then you're going to shove something in that's completely different. In, in this case, she's been talking about like mail-in voting. Um, and right. because ultimately she must be, she, she's, be, she's going to be, I understand she wants to do what's right for the country and you can argue what the number should be, but ultimately her number one goal and Mitch McConnell's goal has to be win the election. Um, I mean, it's three and a half months away. So I just wonder where. I think, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I, listen, I think, you, you know, you've got, traditionally, you you had a situation where it was, it's always been a Republican or a Democrat that's going to win. And, and no matter who won, the whole establishment pretty much won anyway. I mean, these, these are people that uh, you know, they may not be inviting each other to, to each other's, uh, you know, baby showers and Fourth of July barbecues, but they're all on excellent terms. And there are a lot of very good friendships between Republicans and Democrats. So it's kind of this, um, I don't know if monolithic, monolithic, monolithic is not the right term, but they're all kind of on the same team at the end of the day. Then you have Trump, someone like Trump come along and he has just blown the, the whole thing to smithereens. So the fact of the matter is, is that I don't think it's just Pelosi and the Democrats that are trying to get rid of Trump. I think there, there's an entire establishment. And I think Mitch McConnell himself would probably love to be done <laughs> with Trump. He's just throwing a monkey wrench. He, he, he has no respect for traditions or for conventions. Um, he, he's, just, he's just not doing business the right. way He'd that- Right, he'd love to get rid of Trump, I'm sure, but like he absolutely cannot lose the Senate. So, I mean, that's his job. Well, you know, I, I, I haven't seen the latest numbers. I mean, I know that Biden is leading by quite a bit in the presidential poll. I, I don't think anyone doubts that Trump is probably going to, he's going to go on a run. He's going to close the gap. And of course we have the sure. issue of, uh, I think it's the, the, the Walker effect or the Bradley effect or whatever it is where 
I think this time around, Trump voters are not going to be as shy about admitting that they're voting for Trump, but it's, there's still probably going to be uh, quite a few uh, Trump voters who, who just never, sh they show up on election day, but they never showed up in the polls. So even a 15 point lead for Biden doesn't, doesn't quite feel safe at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, well, let's, let's, let's talk for a second about the, like, the market. Like what's the best possible outcome for the market? I come from a pretty conservative, wealthy town, uh, you know, pretty much dominated by Republicans. And all the people, especially, you know, my, my father uh, and, and, and the fathers and mothers of my friends growing up, they're all up in arms about this crazy loony left wing uh, that's tearing the country apart, et cetera, et cetera. And they're kind of, you know, floating this notion that if Biden gets elected, the whole country's going to hell. I mean, how many times have we heard this before? Sure. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that Biden, Biden is a, is a conservative Democrat. I mean, yep. he's a centrist Democrat. He's been around forever. Um, I would say if, he's if very like uh, someone like a Tony Blair in the UK. Um, yeah, really. Because by the way, the difference between Tony Blair and David Cameron was like a hair's width. Like, right. and they're and yet, different parties. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you've got there really just isn't the, the to me in a way. I know, like back in January, if someone had come and told us, "Hey guys, Trump's going to lose." We would have been like, holy crap, well, the S&P is at 3350. Uh, this thing's going to crash if Trump doesn't win. Yep. And, and now I'm sitting here, I think that would have been the majority opinion. Uh, now I'm sitting here looking at this and I'm kind of like, you know, Trump comes with such upheaval and friction that I'm almost wondering if the market would prefer uh, going back to an establishment, you know, run Washington. Um, I obviously can't answer that question. Um, but I do think, I don't think by any way, uh, I don't think in any way, shape or form, a Biden victory translates to a stock market crash. I think that's ridiculous. Right. No, I, I, I get that. And also if stock markets, the national security thing, I mean, right. I think a lot of people are very naive when they say the federal reserve act has to change for the fed to buy stocks. I mean, I think they showed pretty, pretty clearly in the way that they structured the, high yield and corporate bonds, which they're not meant to be able to buy either, um, that they're clearly going to be able to get around the Federal Reserve Act. Um, and to your point, like if they, um, it, it's not, yeah, it, well, maybe it will be, maybe that is actually a case of um, Biden use sell the event, but um, the Fed actually does start buying stocks Japan style, then um, probably have a pretty positive effect in the short term. Although of course in Japan, like it hasn't really done anything in the long run, but. Well, Japan, the, the BOJ now owns, what, 80% of the ETF issuance? Something yeah, it's, like it's, that. It's, some it's, ungodly it's number. Uh, but Japan's different in many ways, though, right? I mean, you know, very few foreigners own JGBs, for example. Like, uh, oh, they have a huge savings rate. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It's very, yeah, I mean, like literally like the opposite to the US in that. But, right. but still, it's, um, it's still an interesting uh, you know, comparison, right? Because we've had it for 30 years. Um, but also, I think, interesting to your point before, like when we talk about inflation and deflation and all this stuff, for me, there is a big line in the sand that all the, and I don't necessarily think it's the Fed buying stocks. Um, I think the real line in the sand would be um, if, well, when, not if, <laughs> central banks launch their own digital accounts for individuals and corporates. Um, and mm. ultimately, this may well destroy the banking sector. But the UK has been talking much more about this recently. We know that there's uh, stuff going on in China. 
Uh, Fed's been looking into it because then you literally can just print money and directly put it into your account with the Fed. Um, hey, here's a thousand dollars, and you don't need to go through any of the primary dealers. There's no market pricing or anything. To me, that is the time. When, then politicians really do have a button they can press and immediately give everyone money. Right. If and that happens, I think there up. is no way politicians can help themselves pressing that button. So. Right. And this is where China has a huge advantage over the U.S. I mean, uh, you know, listen, I'm American. I, I love my country. I'm patriotic, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some, some, some times where I'm like, I wish, I kind of wish we had had a more authoritarian regime. <laughs> like uh, the fact that, you know, politicians are still going to be able to engage in this, hey, elect me and I'll give you X, Y, Z. And then the other one swoops in and says, well, elect me and I'll give you ABC. They're playing that game, playing uh, off against each other. And whereas with China, they can actually just make decisions based on what's in the well, strategic interest of the can country. I change, let me change what you just said. It's politician A says, I'll give you X, Y, Z. Politician B says, I'll give you 2X, 2Y, 2Z. That's the yeah, slight difference. Because it used to be ABC versus XYZ. It used to be different choices and different things. And when was the last time a politician in US or indeed Europe cared about a deficit? I mean, the odd person in Netherlands, <laughs> in Austria, and that's about it. Right. I kind of, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, you have to wonder uh, how far, you know, there, there are quite a few people in Washington that are very, very bright. And I have to imagine that some of the, the politicians that have been around for a long time have pretty much known <laughs> that deficits are BS. They're complete bullshit. Um, and it's now kind of just Wall Street is kind of just catching up and saying, oh, okay, so they're really, th this really doesn't matter anymore is what you're telling me. Um, obviously, you know, Washington could have, they can always pass new laws and stuff and, and make deficits uh, mean something. That's clearly not going to happen here. Um, but well, they really tried that in point. Europe, right? And in all honesty, they're just ignoring it now anyway. So whatever. I mean, yeah. I, and I mean, at the end of the day, everything you've learned in economics class, not everything, but a lot of it is completely obsolete at this point. Um, you're in a situation where when, when there's enough demand for something, when the politicians see uh, it in their best interest to fund some kind of program, the money is going to be printed for it. Uh, and it's just going to become a question of, you know, which, you know, which time is, is that one one last time, you know, one too many, the one that pushes us kind of over the cliff and triggers hyperinflation. And no one knows the answer to that. It right. could be many decades into the future. It could never happen at all. And it could happen next month, right? Yep. So we're, we're really kind of flying blind here. Um, but for the time being, as Raul has said, as we've talked many times, about many times that, you know, deflationary forces are still very much extant here. So whatever inflation we are generating is really uh, healthy at this point, just by virtue of offsetting all the deflation that we've got. Uh, right. And, and that's an interesting one. My, my wife asked me uh, today, like, well, Chris, do you want, you want inflation or deflation? Like, what do you want? <laughs> you know, right? what do you set up for? And I'm like, well, I said, it's not really that simple. It's, it's actually a case of, it, it's the sequencing of it. Like, I'm more set up for, uh, I, I'm kind of hedged to some degree, but like I'm more set up for more deflationary forces in the next six months. And then that going to more inflationary forces after that. Um, yep. and, um, and, you, and you're seeing commodities start to price that in correct. Uh, uh, right I, now. 
And it can't really go the other way. I don't really see, well, I guess it's possible, but it would be less likely to have a whole bunch of inflation and then deflationary fall. It doesn't seem to make that much sense. Um, but at the end of the day- Yeah, it would be, it's hard to imagine how that happens. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of people ask the question, which is worse, deflation or inflation? And I always tell them, I'm like, if you think of them both as enemies, um, deflation is the Soviet Union and inflation is Grenada. <laughs> like de deflation is a much more serious problem than inflation. Inflation can, especially when your your currency is the world's reserve currency, it can right. be managed. So I would agree to some point, to some degree. So deflation is obviously horrible if you're in debt. Um, right. If you're not in debt, and I'm well aware the average American is very much in debt. So, and not just the average American, um, the average country too. So, but deflation, if you have assets, sorry, if you have cash and you want to save or whatever, can be great. Yeah. Um, but, but then what you certainly don't want is double figure inflation. Like if, if we just define 10% or more is let's say that's getting into the realms of hyperinflation. I mean, I know some people say it's 50%, like whatever. But the point is, mm -hmm. I think in that scenario, everyone's going to be very, very miserable. Well, for sure. I mean, I, I actually was, um, there was a book I was looking at last night. It was about uh, Rudolf Havenstein, <laughs> the, uh, the central banker during the Weimar Republic. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of World War II history, but that's actually, that, that hyperinflation phase in Germany is something that every, everyone references, but how many of us have actually read books about it? <laughs> so I'm trying to educate myself a little bit on that. But yeah, at some point. Um, well, the, the classic one is like Lords of Finance, right? That's one of the classic books for all that. It's great. Really good read. Uh, understanding oh, those, I, the, I, the people in Germany, UK, US and France that in effect con controlled the world's monetary system between the wars. The Lords of Finance. I'm going to have to. Yeah, that's that one of the that. classics. Um, it's a great book. Right. It's kind of a bit yeah, slow I mean, to get into because it, it gives like... Um, it goes through each of these four characters individually have a chapter and it's a little slow, but then it kind of gets going. So, yeah. Oh, good to know. I've, I'm always looking for new books. To I know read. you have patience yeah. to read a book and lots of people don't. And it's also probably, a, actually, I think it's not available on Audible, but anyway. Um, do you have any views on Judy Shelton? Because she might be the next Fed chair if Trump wins. Um, do I have any Jew, uh, <laughs> I almost said Jews on, on Judy Jelton. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, not really. I mean, I don't, I don't know a ton about her. Um, at the end of the day, I feel like the whatever path the Fed takes is kind of already preordained. Um, I mean, she was why well, I believe she was actually part of Bob Dole's presidential campaign back in '96, um, and she definitely you know, she she worked at the Hoover Institution, so she's definitely a conservative. Um, but what is a conservative nowadays? I mean, Trump ran as a Republican, as a conservative, and he has blown the doors off deficit spending. Yes. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I just feel like it doesn't even matter at this point who's wearing, who's wearing the, big, the big hat. You know, uh, it's, we are on a course. We are a runaway train, uh, the MMT train, and it's just going to continue. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about very much is perhaps someone like a Judy Shelton maybe going in there and having her own ideas about how things should uh, should be run, and she tries to institute some kind of control um, or or says, hey, 
we're not printing any money anymore. This is, uh, this goes against everything I stand for. You know, we're going to get back to a balanced budget, stuff like that. She could absolutely crash the economy. And at the end of the day, you know, the president doesn't have very much power over the Federal Reserve chairman. Right. But the plutocrats who really run the country do. <laughs> uh, so, that, you know, the, the Fed governors are getting their instructions from up above. And I just don't see any any Fed president or any any Fed governor at all really having an opportunity to to really shake things up. Right. And, and she, so Judy is like someone who used to be very much a proponent of hard money and has clearly had to change views a lot in the last few years. <laughs> Um, right. Exactly. I think the last thing Trump would, last person Trump would want to put on as a governor, which I'm not sure if she's up for the one that expires in 2024 or 2030. Um, but these are long-term appointments, and because um, um, there's two spots right now, but she's clearly changed gigantically in what she's saying, and is now very much print money, print money. Um, but it reminds me of I saw a tweet the other day from I can't remember who it was, but it was a. Uh, a, 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 a lady in the US who has a good following and she's basically saying like, well, you know, you must have people on the Fed that respect the institution and, you know, it's, it's kind of point of view. And I was just like, and I wanted to like write this tweet saying like, I didn't in the end, but like, it was like, well, why? I'm like, you, you need people on an institution that have differing points of views if you want to have a quality discussion. So one guy I speak to quite a lot on Twitter is Danny Blanchflower. He was on the MPC in the UK and he was always the one that voted against the other eight or 10 or whatever it is in the UK. Um, and, um, and he was very unpopular because of that. But because he had a dissenting voice, at least they had more interesting discussions. And it kind of you know, links up to what you just said, which is if you just have a bunch of people, lemmings basically doing the same thing we know what they're going to do they're just going to keep printing money no one's going to try anything different um, right i mean just go back and look at what uh, you go up go back and look at the things that powell said 10 years ago oh he was uh, bang he on in 2000 like, like an uber hawk he comes off yeah. like an uber hawk yeah. things and so it's you know these whoever gets elevated into this this head seat it pretty much i would say you know, 80 to 90% of the decisions have already been made. I mean, Shelton right here, she's, I believe she said that she, she's very dubious about the dual mandate. Uh, she, she thinks we should have a 0% inflation target. She's the, she's someone that uh, if elevated to the Fed and if it's determined that she is going to, you know, be an influential voice, that's the kind of thing that could really undermine the stock market. Because all of a sudden we have a Fed that is no longer potentially willing to jump in at a moment's notice and print money like crazy, you know, run the burr machine. Um, so that could definitely, you know, but at the end of the day, if, if you're, if you're the people behind the scenes really running this country, you're, you're, you already know that you can see ahead of time. Well, Shelton's going to, if we get Shelton in there, you know, the market might be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, um, worried by that. So let's go ahead and just make sure she knows what we want her to say before she has her first. Um, and you know, she, she comes across as a hawk historically, but she's also supported most of Trump's initiatives. So like right. you said, she's been shifting her views for quite some time. So why don't we, let's talk about one of the things my listeners like is when we get a little bit more specific on asset classes. And I don't mean like saying buy a call of this ETF at this price, but like, you know, but why don't we run through a few of the, um, which, and I know you've done this on your podcast as well. I thought it'd be kind of fun. Um, 
So, and and like maybe start with the US dollar because if I think mm -hmm. of today, I think really that's the theme of you know when when the dollar really moves. Um, if, what are you thinking at the moment on the US dollar? Yeah, I mean, I will say this that uh, you know being at Bridgewater, um, it's a great place to start a career because you immediately are immersed in every kind of market possible. Forex, um, yep. uh, futures, pretty much everything. So you just gain a very wide base of knowledge. Um, and, and sorry, just so <clears throat> honest, you, you were there in the early 2000s, right? When it was what, 100 people? Correct. I, I, I started in 2001 and I left, uh, I left at the end of 2003. And it, and, and it was um, what? Uh, I actually Googled it and it, I, I randomly found someone saying in 2003, it had a hundred people and it had 38 billion. Oh AUM, yeah. Which is a lot for only hundred people. Was it, it was really only hundred people then? Uh, you know, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but it definitely was way, way smaller than it is now. Yeah, Cause it's um, now 1500. You know, a lot of their business has been, they, they manage the currency risk for a lot of big funds. Um, so to some extent, I'm not sure exactly what their stated AUM consists of now, About but back oh, yeah. at the time I always viewed, I viewed our stated number as kind of inflated because it wasn't like we actually had full discretion over some of that money. It was just currency overlay risk. Uh, but, okay. At the end of the day, they do a good job of getting you introduced and immersed in fundamental analysis, right? And I've always been a macro guy like yourself, kind of, you know, longer term, uh, thinking strategically, et cetera, et cetera. As every month that's gone by over the last really 10 months, I have abandoned <laughs> fundamental analysis more and more. <laughs> I, am, I am relying almost exclusively at this point on my technical analysis ability. <laughs> Um, so, you know, to answer your question about what do I think is going to happen with the dollar, I mean, we've obviously had a very sharp move here. Uh, if you look at the CFTC data, it's obvious that the short dollar position is getting very overloaded. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure that the dollar index was going to be able to push down below 95.75, but it did very, very quickly today. Um, and really, there's only one level left support-wise, yeah, 94.65. Um, I actually think things are setting up for a, and I know that you, you said something the other night um, along the same lines. We're setting up for, because there's still this, this black hole of dollar funding at the center of the global financial system, right? It's still there. Yeah. It's just oh, yeah. been kind of obfuscated by, uh, by all this weak dollar stuff. Um, but it's going to make itself known at some point, and at least technically, uh, and at least in terms of positioning, this looks like a, a pretty good setup for a contrarian long position in the dollar. Right. I mean, I think for those, so when we're talking about the CFTC positioning every week, in fact, you can just go to Hedgeopia and you can see every week they do a write-up of um, all the positions that have to be reported to the CFTC. Uh, US actually has an amazing amount of weekly data, which I know I always say in this podcast, but you compare that to what you can get in the UK and across Europe and Asia, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, What's that um, site you mentioned, Hedgeopia? Yeah, Hedgeopia, yeah. They do a weekly report that shows you all the positioning of every major asset class that the, CF the CFTC positioning, so futures positioning. It's really, really ah, interesting. Um, and, um, and it shows uh, right now it's, uh, there's a huge short on US. This is futures, right? So of course, people could have opposing positions in spot and whatever, but um, in, from futures in the main asset classes, you've got gigantically long gold, 
um, very short US dollar, which is in effect the same trade. Um, you've got um, what's changed recently in bonds is you've now got long 10 year for the first time in a long time, uh, long mm -hmm. actual asset price, not, not yield, uh, but huge short on 30 year. So that's why the 30 year could be up for a big sque short squeeze as well, i.e. for TLT to go up. Um, and um, the S&P is kind of actually been relatively short, but again, that could be some form of hedging to other positions. Um, yeah, that, that's right. It could be. Um, you know, with regard to the gold positioning, I'm obviously not surprised to find out that it's, uh, you know, very tilted towards uh, the longs at this point. And there, listen, there will be a flush out um, and the weak hands will get, they, they will be stomped uh, and that will set the stage for the next leg up. But um, as, as far as the, uh, the, the, long, the, the long bond, um, you're saying that the, the 10 year has suddenly swung to a net bullish position. Yes. Um, a very smart guy that I speak to weekly. He's part of our, our weekly roundtable. Um, he's been telling all of us, get out of the long end of government, uh, the, the government curve. Get out of anything, you know, pretty much eight years and out duration wise. Um, his whole thing is he, he's basically got his clients coming out of anything long, long duration treasuries and into top credit tranche um, treasuries, excuse me, not treasuries, uh, corporate bonds. Yeah. Um, and there's, he's been, been talking for a while about the fact that he actually expects uh, AAA corporate bonds to, to, to yield less than treasury bonds at some point in the future. Uh, and the reason being that these, you know, let's By the way, just, just to be clear, there's, there's only two company. AAA companies, right? So it's Microsoft and J&J. Or is it Apple? No, it's oh, I thought Apple was. I think it's Microsoft and J&J. Or is it Apple? Anyway. Okay, let's, well, let's just use Microsoft as an example. They're good so example. Microsoft, like, well, yeah, why would Microsoft bonds yield on, a, on an equal duration basis? Why would they ever yield more, excuse me, less than a, than a U.S. Treasury? Well, Microsoft has, you know, real products. Have, they have real revenues and real cash flow. Uh, you can actually sit there and see, okay, well, this is where my interest payment and my principal repayment is going to come from. Whereas when you look at the United States Treasury, I mean, anyone really know what's going on there right now? <laughs> um, so you know, his whole thesis is that maybe, you know, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, you, you actually are going to see people express more faith in, in mega cap uh, bonds than they will in treasuries. Um, but just in general, he, he believes that the minute that inflation really begins to rear its head and he thinks it's going to happen uh, early next year, you're going to have an absolute route in the back end of the, of the U.S. Treasury curve. Uh, and I've actually right. been shifting my holdings more towards the front end. So we actually, my, my um, uh, retirement clients have shifted out of TLT and IEF into SHY and IEI and also some, uh, some TIP, uh, the, the, the TIPS ETF. Um, and I, I think, you know, bonds have been going up for so long. Uh, the, char the chart still looks bullish. Um, I, st I continue to believe that, you know, the 10 year yield could, could get sub 10 basis points, but at this point in time, and if you look at the VXTLT, like there's, it's a little scary. It's a little too quiet out there. There's definitely the potential for a major route. Um, and as we've talked about before, like the fed is much more concerned with stability in the treasury market than they are with stability in the stock market. They're both important. But at the right, end of the day, ultimately they're, they're going to everything. Right, they're going to make from, sure that the treasury market is is yeah. behaving in an orderly fashion. 
so the treasuries are always going to get their their primary attention. But uh, you know, we obviously in March we had a, a crazy move in bond volatility, and that's going to come again. Um, and my, my friend is basically just saying that when that does come, uh, he believes it's going to happen uh, in the high duration debt. Interesting. It's an interesting one. I mean, this is probably the really the number. Well, apart from the U.S. dollar, it's related to the U.S. dollar too. But like the whole inflation, deflation. When does it come? What's the order? You know, that, it, 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 I will well, say to people, I think, think what you have, have right, it doesn't really matter what you trade. If you're right on that dynamic, you you'll do well. Um, about the dollar, you mean? Yeah, I mean the inflation, deflation, or yeah. the dollar—it's the same thing, really. If if you get that positioning right, it doesn't really matter what trades you make; you'll be fine. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I I was reading something earlier today. They basically said that exact thing. If you figure out the dollar, you're going to have you know ninety percent of it figured out. You know, I think what you've got here is you have over the last 10 years, there have been so many people predicting inflation um, and it never happened. So it's almost become like the legend of inflation. <laughs> like we've heard tell ancient scholars used to write of this thing called inflation uh, and it hasn't been seen since. Um, so we're kind of in this mode now where no one really, we're all aware that inflation might, might you know, speed up here but no one's really willing to pull the trigger on their bond portfolios until they actually see it. Right, but also um, if, you, if you look at the most leading indicators for inflation, which is things like, well, obviously commodity prices, um, uh, that's like very leading, um, you know, uh, right. uh, downstream and upstream, sorry. And then you've got PPIs, which have been really weak generally, but they've kind of stabilized a bit across the world. Um, yeah, and, then, and then you're starting, you know, this is the stuff way before you get to CPI. Um, it, it, you know, this could just be, a, we could be in a little mini reflationary bounce for a month or two and US economy is clearly slowed down again um, with all the real-time data. That might freak people out. We don't know, right? It, it, um, you know, US had what, three month-on-month -month negative CPI, um, I can't remember if it was CPI or inflation prints in a row, which has never happened ever. And then June was positive again. Um, but it, it just feels to me that for this year, you know, there's one real Fed put, and right now that's on bonds. I mean, that's the thing they're actually buying. Um, right. And, um, and the thing they're buying well, more than anything else is government bonds. So I don't think for this year, Powell would ever allow any of the US rates to get out of control upwards. Um, right. And that it kind who of has a clue what happens next year? I've no idea. Um, it begs the question, like, you know, when, when you see gold and silver and even, even agricultural commodities, which have just had the bejesus built, uh, beat out of them over the last 10 years, yeah. they're starting to catch a bid. Uh, you look at DBA, which is the ETF. Very slow bid, though. It hasn't uh, moved. I'm in DBA. Very slow. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think that, that that's going to be the next one to pop and really have that big, you know, uh, parallel yeah, I've actually got, it, might, it might take a while. It might take a while. I've got a sizable but, position in that. I just, uh, the, um, and the nice thing about it is... Um, it's very low contango and the roll yields don't screw you anything like a right. USO normally. Um, it's a kind of different situation. That so. actually reminds me of uh, something that we also discussed on our, our round table today. I, you know, I had really not looked circling back to, to oil. I really hadn't been paying much attention to oil because I kind of, you know, we had that obviously it went steeply negative and then everything kind of bounced back. And I kind of said to myself, I don't really understand what's going on here. And in general, if I don't understand what's going on, I don't trade it, right? So 
but today someone asked me from my take uh, just on the chart, the oil chart, and, and it really does look quite bullish at this point. Yeah. Uh, which would obviously fit in with the inflationary theme uh, just uh, in commodity dollar, prices. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, if, if, if oil was going to fail, technically speaking, it would have done so a month ago. Uh, and it has kind of held on and just gone sideways in a sort of cup and handily kind of way, looking at the weekly chart here. The interesting thing, and this is not something I was prepared for, I used to look at the oil versus gold chart quite a bit, mm -hmm. uh, but I hadn't in a while. And I looked at it again today, and it looks almost identical to the oil versus dollar chart. So everyone and their, their mother is bullish on gold right now, but it actually looks just based on a technical basis, like oil versus gold may actually be the trade, the next big trade uh, where you really got a lot of upside here. Um, so I actually am thinking about tomorrow, I'll do, do a little more work on it, but I, I may be going long oil uh, and, and maybe taking some profit on some of my gold positions um, just to kind of, you know, I, 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 as you are as well, I'm sure I'm a little bit worried about a big dump in gold. Um, it's just had such a big move, uh, and it's inevitable. So if anything, I look at it as kind of diversifying my commodity exposure, but yeah, gold, uh, gold looks like it's ready to get eclipsed by oil here. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I, gold and well, I guess silver the last few days, but silver is a totally different beast. Like I'll be probably much oh, more yeah. likely to take some profits in silver just because it, it, it just, it always has a big pullback at some point. Um, and it's gone so far. I mean, it has, I mean, and it's, you know, copper is all, you know, copper is not as, as volatile as, as silver is, but you know, silver is, it's straddling that line between industrial metal and precious metal. Right. Yeah. So it kind of exhibits the best and worst characteristics of both. Um, but like you said, yeah, gold, gold, a really bad day for gold uh, is like down 2%. And that, if that's something that you can't weather, then you're using too much leverage, right? Oh, oh right, yeah. I mean, um, to be honest, my, my, my gold position is mainly just um, unlevered. I mean, I have long, long dated call options, which in, in many ways is more of a play on volatility. Um, right. But I have um, almost 20% of portfolio in just, just basically spot gold ETFs. And, now, um, you, uh, and, and you, to be honest, I don't care it. if that goes down 2%, whatever. I mean, it's just a, right. it's an insurance policy, really. Um, so I'm not trading. You it. brought the, uh, the GVX to my attention. That was the gold volatility uh, index. I actually found there's a silver one, VXSLV. Um, uh, VXSLV, and, yeah, there's, yeah. Yeah, so well, and, I mean, volatility skyrocketed today, even as, as silver ripped it higher, up. which is kind of a replay of what we saw back in March, right? Exactly, and then, um, and it, that, that is exactly my logic of buying long-dated gold cool options last week, because the, the, the realized volatility had gone down into the 14s, which was right. probably where it was in 2019. I mean, there were times where it was lower, times where it was higher. Um, now that doesn't mean now the implied volatility of the option was higher. It was more like twenty percent, but like because it's a longer data option, it's gonna it's up the the curve of the smile, right? But like um, right. But it. I looked at what happened in March and when gold flew up um, before it crashed, um, mm -hmm. volatility went up too, and that's when that was the last time I sold gold options that I'd bought in like nineteen, because I'm like, well, the vol's just gone up so much, like why wouldn't I sell this? Because like the vol's going to come down and it's kind of like, 
right. I mean, hey, listen, when the, when the VIX was up in, you know, the 60, 70 range, I, I sat there and I said, okay, well, this thing could go to 100 <laughs> or 110. But if, you know, you've got to be willing to just go in there and, and sell some straddles or just sell some premium or whatever exactly. and make it, just make it a little bit long dated. So you don't, you know, uh, paint yourself into a corner on a short time frame. but you know, it's coming back down. It's almost like free money. It's, it's, it's like that creepy old man holding out candy. <laughs> it's like you want the candy and you know yeah. that it'll taste good. You're just not sure if you want to interact with that creepy old man. <laughs> right. And so, Look, some, some of the listeners here are very sophisticated. Others are classic retail investors, right? So um, I want to talk about volatility. Like a lot of people have read, or actually I, I say that, I doubt many people have actually read Christopher Cole's piece, um, you know, on this 100-year portfolio, but a lot of people have probably listened to him on different um, podcasts. And, and, and he kind of suggests you should have up to like 20% in long volatility positions. Um, yeah. Now, this is... a uh, first of all, if someone can't trade options, it's a really hard. Uh, that's right. really hard to kind of replicate if you're a retail investor. Um, but how how do you do you think of volatility as an actual asset class in, in itself, uh, or you know how, how do you think of that in in, in your portfolio and, and your clients? Um, I I don't I don't think of it as an asset. Um, you know, it's not. Maybe at the end of the day, it's um, you know a stock, obviously. Uh, a good stock is just going to go up and up and up and up for the life of, you know, for the, the holding period. Um, and a bond as well, you know, at least in a bull market for bonds, you, you buy it at, at par and it just goes up and up and up and up. That's not possible really with volatility, right? I mean, right. you're pretty much, you're going to have shifts where, you know, we got used to a, a, a 10 to 20 kind of VIX there for a while. And I think those days are pretty much over. We're going to go back to closer to the historical norm, which is 20 to 30 here for a while. Now, that being said, like, is it, is it something to own in your portfolio? I, absolutely, I think it is. You know, as long as you're judicious about it and as long as you understand what it is that you're buying. Um, but you know, there's and actually how do you tend of... to do that? I mean, I know that you, you've tweeted a lot about straddles and strangles. I mean, these are two. So for those that don't know what they are, so, so a straddle is going to be buying a put in a call at the same strike the same expiry um and, and a strangle is going to be having a bit of a gap between them so it's a slightly more aggressive right. I mean, form yeah we actually and we've been talking about this for for a while now uh yeah. i mean i actually i started out uh looking at gold straddles and then i kind of just moved on i said you know what, what silver straddles should also work and then i decided instead of a silver straddle to do a silver strangle so right now i i went out and i i bought a bunch of uh, 20 to 22 SLV strangles. Um, and I've, I've got it tilted more towards uh, the put because at the end of the day, today was an anomaly really, or not an anomaly, but it's something that doesn't happen that often where you have a spike in volatility <laughs> and a spike in price, right? Right. Exactly. Um, but theoretically, uh, a, a gold or silver straddle or strangle should offer you very good protection in the event of a meltdown in you know, stocks, gold, silver, uh, and even bonds, right? Um, so I kind of just look at volatility as it's a, it's a way to hedge everything in your portfolio in the current, in the world that we currently operate in. Because I mean, you know, risk parity funds are kind of like, they, they have not been doing well, right? Used to be that stocks went up, bonds went down and, and, and back and forth like that. And that's obviously not happening, happening anymore because everything is being driven uh, by lower yields. 
Um, so that, that relationship between the 10-year yield and, and the S&P 500 is broken down. Um, so I think, it, yeah, I mean, volatility uh, can be a one-stop shop for hedging your entire portfolio. I just looked, GVZ, since the goal to the index, um, did jump a whole bunch today. So it went from around 15 up to 17. That's a big move yeah. for GVZ, actually. So, and silver was off the charts. I, I actually did already have that one. Yeah, I mean, it went from... 35 to 47 on the huge and it'll come back and fill that gap at some point yeah but i mean it looks just based on i actually looking at silver so silver silver was up as high as seven percent again tonight uh and it's still up five percent here um and and gold is kind of tagging along but it does when you get a a gap gapping move like that it makes sense to not only expect that to continue, um, but it, it may also start to create some havoc in other markets. I mean, if you were, think about the Robinhood army right now. Mm-hmm. Here they are, they've been buying S and SPY calls and QQQ calls and stuff like that. All of a sudden they look over and they're saying, what is SLD? <laughs> what is this? You're right? And, and I mean, another guy on a round table was asking the question today, like, what happens if the entire Robinhood army starts yanking their money from equity markets and start piling into precious metals? And it absolutely could happen. Right. Um, and and that, there's no question. They start bidding up implied volatility, right? And that, and then on the other end, of course, that could potentially result in in a, a smackdown for stocks. Right. Um, but even you know, even forget about the Robinhood army. I mean, just think about hedge funds in general. Um, I mean, I have a good friend out here who's an RIA, and I've been preaching to him about gold and silver forever, and he, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't own any. Um, and I, I, after today, I showed him the chart of silver; it's up 96% or something since the March bottom, right? It's like this is now something that, you know, traditionally people might allocate one or two percent to gold and silver. My clients have over they have 12% positions in gold and silver which is massive compared to traditionally what's seen as appropriate. Um, I think you're going to see more and more uh, portfolio managers shift to a higher allocation to commodities and gold in particular. Yeah. And that's, um, it's interesting actually, because you say one or 2%, but the, the stats that I've seen uh, recently from um, this is from pension funds and institutional investors is, uh, basically, the range they came up with was 0.3 to 0.5% in gold yeah. of, of AUM. Um, and so it's tiny. And, and the highest it's really ever been apparently is around 4%-ish. Um, so, but that's 10x from where it is now. And, and obviously gold, well, gold could not take that without the price rocketing. But silver, I mean, geez, the market cap of silver is over 10 times lower than gold. So, um, you know, right. So yeah, I mean, so silver is is a you know my 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 retirement clients. It's 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 like eighty percent gold, twenty percent silver. That's actually like fifteen percent silver and five percent platinum. Just threw a little platinum in there for good measure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's no question that ultimately everything here comes back to gold. Um, that's going to be the main pressure valve along with stocks uh, for the this inflationary move that the Fed hopes is going to happen over the next ten years. So let's how about something a bit cooler, uranium. Ah, there's a there's a whole underground fin twit uranium clique I've kind of found out about. So. I did not know that until last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, but they really are. And I, and I guess I should have, I guess I should have realized that there would be, I, I, visit, I looked, took a look at uranium uh, last year at one point, uh, the ticker was UUUU. Um, and I just, it, at the time I was already kind of predicting that inflation was going to rise. I was way too early. Uh, and I just was looking for, you know, undervalued ways to bet on, on a weaker dollar. Uh, and at the, you know, I bought some call options. They did nothing and I dumped them and moved on. Um, and now I've been doing a lot more work on it and looking at some of the other companies that are out there and the, the charts are much more attractive than the, the UUUU. But uh, uranium prices really gap Sorry, is, I don't know, is UUUU just uh, actual, some form of just uranium ETF for the spot price? Uh, it's actually, it's a company called Energy Fuels. So oh, okay. For you, UUUU. And, and if you look at the chart now, the chart, uh, it's a beautiful, um, you know, kind of inverted head and shoulders here on the long-term chart. Uh, so pretty much all of these uranium stocks have been doing quite well. Just pulling it uh, out. But yeah, the volatility in spot uranium is, is makes silver <laughs> look very calm. Yeah, but the, the, the uranium doesn't, it doesn't trade on spot market. It's a bit different. Right. So it's traded um, B2B. It's, well, in effect, it's OTC, in effect. So it's big contracts. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of us don't it's have a good, much it's use a good for point. uranium ore. Um, and obviously the, the, the control, you know, the, the supply is, is tightly regulated. Oh, wow. I've just looked at, um, oh I've just looked at triple U and it has this monumental kind of head and shoulders going back to kind of 2017. Yeah. There's all sorts of ones actually. There's all sorts. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, there's so actually a pretty sharp this one, I do own, um, what is it? Uh, CCJ? What's Cameco? So yeah, the one I own is CCJ. Um, so I always like to disclose what I own because I, um, and um, which to me is the kind of the preeminent, you know, it's Canadian um, preeminent right. kind of player in the space. And, um, but, and I, I've always thought, you know, I'm a scientist, right? I used to be in, I've always been a fan of nuclear power. I'm fully aware when a Fukushima yep. happens, you're going to get backlash. Um, but I think yep. enough time has now passed and nuclear will be part of the energy mix. It is far cleaner, and I know some people hate that, but it is ultimately far cleaner than burning fossil fuels. And one day we might get fusion to work, but the joke is that's always 50 years away. So, um, Right. And so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it has, and uranium has, it's a little like silver in that it, I mean, wow, when it moves, holy moly, it moves. Right, and and it really does. It's crazy. Right. And, and like you said, it's, it's not, uh, the, the bull case for uranium is, is, is not really a weaker dollar, although that should, that should contribute to it longer term, a uh, weaker dollar. Yeah, but, but like it's, different. Said, it's, it's a different play. It's, it's a much less liquid market and it's real supply right. and demand, I think, in all honesty. It, it's really all about just replacing, uh, you know, it's just the most, the, the, the best value for your money in terms of energy, right? I mean, we have all of these green energy um, sources and products that have come online and they're all, some of them are very cost prohibitive. Um, and you look at nuclear power and it's just dirt cheap compared to what we're paying for some of these uh, green solutions. It is interesting because generally solar, if in a sunny place, so for example, all of Australia and Australia mm -hmm. is a pretty sunny place, right? Solar is a fantastic source of energy. Um, now, if you're in the North of Scotland, or in, within the Arctic Circle, <laughs> it's not such a good source, right? I and mean, this is just very basic science. And for a lot of the US, if you're in Arizona, uh, in fact, I think it was a, 
it's double figure states where actually solar can be cheaper than burning gas, I think. Um, Makes I, sense, yeah. Um, although natty gas has been in the doldrums a bit recently, so maybe that's not the case now. But, but I mean, you know, big difference to, again, if you're in North Canada versus Arizona. So um, solar's been incredible in terms of its um, technological development. But of course, there are, it has its weaknesses too in terms of it's a pretty messy process to make uh, solar panels. And of course, they take up a lot of space. Um, so again, if you're in Monaco, not very helpful. Um, right. <laughs> versus the outback of Australia, um, or right. indeed the whole northwest of China, for example. And China produces about 80% of solar panels. Um, the, the thing that's been relatively disappointing, I think, is wind. And, and, and the thing we've never been able to crack is tidal. Um, tidal, tidal is, yeah. If you think of the amount of energy that the moon, oh, yeah. and, and tides are about three quarters moon, a quarter sun. Um, but the amount of energy when you move all the water in the world up and down by a meter, that's insane, the amount of energy. Are you saying, Chris, that you want to convert, actually convert the moon into cheddar? Well, the moon is made of cheddar, so I don't know why <laughs> you want to convert it. I think that's just outrageous. You're being cheesist. I mean, I know you're cheesy, but now you're being cheesist. Yes, um, that was a pretty cheesy one. Um, but um, but I do I do have a two year old so I'm, yeah. I'm I'm playing the cheesy game more often. But tidal is a beautiful source of completely clean energy, and it's just basic math in terms of you know basically potential energy of water. Um, but um, yeah, it's been an absolute nightmare to to, to actually make it work. Um, but what are they using that? Is it like as like an under underwater windmill kind of a thing, like a turbine? Yeah. What, yeah, what the way, well, this is the point. No one's cracked it, but there are different theories, right? You can have like um, a very low frequency up and down, which is what the tides are. And, and low mm -hmm. frequency isn't that helpful if you want to drive a turbine, right? Because the turbine is high frequency. So you need ways of turning that low frequency into a high frequency. Now, another way is you can have like air caverns and the tide goes up and it forces air through a turbine and it, it, it just, the annoying thing is around the world, there's always tides happening. It's just, it's just been really, really right. difficult. Um, and honestly, solar has, solar's done fantastic, uh, but that has its limits, right? I mean, solar's up to, um, uh, I can't remember the latest efficiencies, but it's way north of 30%. And, but ultimately you can't get above a hundred percent. So you can't get a magnitude well, improvement. Yeah. You can, and like you said, it's just never going to reach certain parts of the world. Oh, of course. I mean, pretty useless in some parts. Um, but I think energy is an interesting one. And the thing I like about uranium is, and this does sound very Dr. Dark of me, <laughs> uh, <I'm> saying <laughs> on uranium, but it's just not correlated with other stuff. So I think that's kind of cool. So that's a good point. I might get wrecked on it, but um, it's just not very correlated because it's an entirely its own thing. And you know, we haven't talked about Bitcoin yet. And it's like, Generally speaking, that hasn't been very correlated with much. Um, right. Now, it does have times where it correlates more with equities, like now, and it has had times where it's correlated more with gold, which isn't the case at the moment. But, but it, it does oscillate. It doesn't really have a clue what it wants to correlate with. But that's kind mm -hmm. of one of its charms for me. Is it, It's just an uncorrelated asset. Um, well, I think, it, I think it was Ray Dalio that said something like, uh, if you can find a dozen uncorrelated, uncorrelated assets that's the holy grail uh and, and you know it, it really is an extraordinarily difficult exercise to to go out and even find half a dozen 
liquid assets that really aren't correlated is very difficult to do. So like you said, I mean, to find one in uranium uh, is great. I mean, given what's going on with the dollar and what I think we both expect the dollar to do over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, you know, uranium may actually start to correlate a little bit with other commodities just, just by virtue of that. But uh, it really is driven by totally independent factors. Right. And I think there's another one, uh, rare earths, um, because it's because it's a completely different reason. But rare earths, uh, nine out of 10 of the top producers are in China. Um, it's rare earths are actually not that rare. Uh, it's kind of a silly name. Scientists are great at coming up with kind of silly names. Um, or, or, or like with stuff like dark matter. Well, it's called dark matter because, well, it's dark and we sort of know it's matter and that's kind of it. But um, rare earths could get very political, incredibly political. Um, and well, that, also and some of the other large spot. deposits are places like Russia, um, which again, that can come into politics. <laughs> um, and, but there's plenty in the earth's crust. Um, it's just, um, again, what's the price you can extract it at? But they're incredibly useful now in pretty much everything you ever touched that's electronic. So, yeah, I was going to say they play a big role in semiconductors, don't they? Huge role, and in your phone, um, in um, all sorts of stuff. So it's kind of an interesting one where China's just had a, it's got a gigantic stranglehold on the supply, and I mean, but these are very strategic um, elements, um, but they're just not cool to talk about because everyone wants to talk about oil. Well, I'm looking. I'm actually looking at this this REMX right now. Yeah, that's uh, the main ETF. The, yeah, it's not big. Right, it's like yeah. hundred mil, I think AUM. It's pretty small. And these are all Chinese companies, I assume. Yeah, right? they're pretty much all in the top ten. I think it's nine or eight. There's an American one. Okay. Uh, there might be an Australian one. It's something like that. It's it's pretty much all China. Yeah. I mean, this thing has gone from three hundred and forty dollars down to forty. Um, yes. But <laughs> but at the moment, the the, the chart looks. Fairly constructed. The chart uh, looks really like quite interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. It looks like it's going to run here for a little bit, as long as uh, you know, as long as uh, market sentiment doesn't sour greatly. Um, but this is another interesting one because even the problem is this isn't getting actual exposure to the. This is like buying a gold miner, right? So right, exactly. And so it's like you could have um, some like crazy political stuff happen that mean the price of rare earths go up a ton, but these stocks might get wrecked because of that. So it, it, it's, it's not perfect either. So I don't think there's a good ETF for actual rare earth. Yeah. Exposure. Well, I mean, these are all, these are all the elements that you could never remember uh, on your chemistry exam, right? Yeah. These, these, these stuff the in the bit that's expanded. Really the obscure ones. ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Scandium is the only one I, I'm, oh, Promethium maybe, but there's only a couple of them there where uh, I think Thorium was mentioned in a, yeah. uh, in a bond movie recently. But, but, that, but stuff like it. Neodymium is used in magnets all the time. It's like amazing magnets. Those hardcore, super duper magnets. Mm. And you don't realize how many magnets are used in things. It, it, it's just kind of crazy how much this gets used, but um, yeah. Um, well, I guess that begs the question. It's like, you know, we're circling back here to oil and, and China and everything like that, you know, looking at kind of looking at, you know, before a, a UFC or a boxing match, uh, you, you know, they have the tail of the tape, the height and the reach and all these various things, kind of looking at the US versus China in terms of the tail of the tape, you know, what does China have an advantage in? What do we have an advantage in? And obviously, you know, right out of the gate, it, it's obvious that 
our our natural wealth in terms of oil is a huge advantage. And, and the yep. fact that the global oil market is still priced in dollars is a huge problem for China. Now, from what I understand, their, their yuan-based uh, contract um, has actually been gaining quite a bit of traction. So we have them trapped right now, but if they were able to actually get um, you know, a, a real adoption of that, that yuan contract, it would really put us in a hole. Right. And also because you, but you've also got other players like Russia, who obviously is a gigantic producer that are very happy right. to, I mean, Russia's off the, US, Russia has no U.S. debt anymore. It, it's one of the large countries that is very much off the dollar. Um, but the point is you've got, and players like Iran, there are plenty of places that would like to see more competition to the U.S. Uh, petro market. Um, U.S. dollar denominated market. So it's an interesting one. Um, it's really funny, by the way. Did you know this is a fun fact that China and America, their land mass is within one percent of each other in in, in square yeah. miles. It's pretty cool. I, I don't oh, know which one's bigger. Those are the area you mean? Yeah, in the land mass. So I'm not including like disputed waters in the South China Sea and all this stuff, but the actual land mass okay, is basically identical. Um, that makes uh, sense, actually. Good stuff. Well, we covered a lot of stuff. So, um, anything else? I mean, we covered pretty much every asset that exists, I think. Oh, you did well. well did we, we want to touch briefly on the uh, on the Vanguard thing, or no? We we'll leave that leave that out. I'll probably best leave that out. So yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about that after the fact down the road there. But um, no, I, I, like you said, I think we touched on on quite a bit. Um, you know, keep your eye on that dollar index. That's gonna it's gonna point the way, I think, for for quite a while here. I will say this one 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 last thing we can discuss uh, the the euro. I, I'm kind of at a loss in terms of what to do with the euro. Um, it's obviously it's an easy way to to and a, and a highly liquid way to play the index since it accounts for something like sixty percent of the dollar index. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, okay, I thought that the the euro would rally. Uh, on the news of the deal, um, it did but it rallied quite a bit more than I thought it would. Oh yeah, so sorry. Oh, you, so because it didn't sort of rally, and then it did over over my night. Um, right. The initial reaction was pretty mu muted, and then yeah, so it made just went. Went. yeah. Right. I mean, it moved the full. Well, it's interesting too because you know traditionally that would have been uh, something that would have undermined the euro. You know, more more euro printing, but it almost seems now that when when these countries announce stimulus that involves money printing their currencies rally <laughs> yeah so it, maybe it's just people, maybe it's just people chasing the stock market it uh, it's an interesting one because if you just look at the euro it's a i mean it's a clusterfuck right let's be honest i don't yeah. know anyone that i mean unless you're you live in brussels and your job is to say how great it all is and, and look i was very much a remainer like you know in the whole brexit thing but for other reasons, and also the UK wasn't in the euro, so that was, you know, but to think you can have monetary consolidation across all these diverse economies, but not fiscal, it just isn't going to work. And, and ultimately, they're going to get fiscal consolidation. And I mean, and Germany can't cover Europe forever. Um, right. I mean... I don't, it's, it's a giant mess at some point. In the long run, I'm super bearish on it. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think the euro was designed to, to provide a, a legitimate counterweight 
to the dollar, to do right. the dollar hegemony, right? So, uh, and it is, it has not really succeeded in that regard. But but in yeah, trade, it's, it's, outside it's, of Europe in trade, it's not used. I mean, it, right. the reason it's 20% of global trade is just Europe, right? That's the only reason. Right. And, you know, yeah, you, you, like you were hinting at, you've got 28 countries that don't have the best track record of getting along, and you're trying to uh, apply monetary policy uh, from one place. So, uh, the, yeah, the euro has had problems uh, from Jump Street. Um, and, yeah, well, I mean, once, I, you know, at the first hint that the printing presses are slowing down uh, over stateside, I would imagine that you're going to see the focus uh, turn back to just the dire state that Europe is in. It is interesting, though. You might be right, though, on because European stocks do look pretty good value versus US right now. And I know that that's been like the, that sentence I just said has been literally the dumbest sentence to say in the last 10 years because they were always good value and they never moved. No, no. The dumbest one is I like value over momentum. <laughs> oh, God. This is, no, actually, I want to give a dumber one. Silver gold ratio. Oh. People that trade silver and gold based upon that one ratio. It's like it could, I get it's interesting, but it, there's no law, you know, it, because if, if the actual monetary end game is that gold is important, it's going to blow silver away onto a different planet. And suddenly it's right. printing a 300 ratio. Um, but like, I don't know. Well, it wasn't as bad as that chart the other day that was, well, it was, um, it was a guy who was doing technical analysis on a chart. I think it was Tabby Costa that was, um, based on that. So the chart was plotting the trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds in the world. And he was drawing mm. lines on it. And it's like, how can you do TA on this chart? This isn't even an asset you can buy. It just makes no sense. And he was kind of coming well, up that, with a thousand ways to why be long gold. And it was kind of like- you know, well, De Dennis, Dennis Gartman is, is also used to do that. Uh, I mean, the, I guess the idea is that, <sighs> You know whether it's whether you're talking about a market or you're talking about uh, some kind of sum or product uh, that they're going to exhibit patterns uh, that are seen in nature, right? So uh, I, I completely agree with you. You get to a technical analysis is great in markets where it's widely used because it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. All right, that's why in Bitcoin it's super. People think Bitcoin can't. TA in Bitcoin is way more successful than in most markets because of that yeah. exact point. You've got, in general. you've got so many people in crypto doing TA. Now, don't get me wrong. It then does a massive move up and down and wrecks you or makes you a millionaire. But like, um, it actually respects technicals crazily well. Um, it does. Very interesting. That is true. Because it's just psychology. We, we should definitely right? touch on Sorry? I was gonna say we should we should touch on Bitcoin the next time we we uh, come on. Um, that's actually something that I'm I know you're extremely well versed in it. I actually uh, bought a couple of books last year, so I'm kind of getting up to speed on it. Um, okay, cool. Which but, ones do you uh, get? Like Bitcoin Standard or one of the others? Oh, uh, well, let me pull up my Kindle here and I'll tell you. The, the, the exact to be honest one. with Bitcoin, there's there's lots of good books and. Um, but well, I, you I, know, I, given the fact that. You know, I still think that there are, I mean, how many, how many hedge funds out there have a position in Bitcoin, do you think? So, well, I mean, I, I looked into this a lot, like, so in, in 2017, 18, I was an advisor to a, a firm in Hong Kong that was working with a lot of the hedge funds and, um, you know, like an equivalent to like a galaxy. And, um, um, and so absolutely, there, there are a whole bunch of hedge funds that have very small Bitcoin positions, you know, so you're talking like, you know, up maybe a percent of AUM, if that. Right. Um, and 
what they're not generally doing is so that's the traditional hedge funds now you've got the kind of new kind of digital asset morgan creek right right now now they are actually well morgan creek digital is morgan creek is actually a traditional vc that is you know which yusko founded and you know is is actually it it didn't had a digital division that anthony runs and um so now, now you've got people in those now you've got people in this kind of next generation of hedge funds which are doing the more interesting stuff like that right now one of the big things is getting yields by staking ethereum or whatever and people are getting 100 yields a year for now they will say it's for no risk and it could be actually it is theoretically no risk except it's no risk unless a, some black swan happens and suddenly you're wrecked right so you know nothing ever has no risk but um there are lots of super interesting plays you've now got about three billion dollars of ethereum staked in financial contracts it's not inconsiderable um but um i think march showed what happened to hedge funds like bitcoin got absolutely slapped down right like minus 60 yeah. in a day all became like, a source of funds uh, right because it was well what's the first thing you're going to sell in your you know in your program to what order you sell things <laughs> well bitcoin's going to be at the top of that list for a lot of hedge funds so it got utterly destroyed in march but actually it's recovered incredibly well i mean it's uh, above that's actually when i bought when i bought my first uh, just in terms of like buying bitcoin i i, I use the gbtc for for my okay. retirement okay oh so you're buying it at a premium but i guess that's it's easy to buy yeah well yeah, yeah but it's a long term holding so it's uh but just yeah, long run on that the premium has to go down to basically zero just be aware of that but um, um, I got a question for you, actually. Yeah. Do we see on the S&P, do we see 4,000 or 2,500 first? Oh, on the S&P. Interesting. On the S&P. Because the S&P, it, oh, it's so much easier to call the NASDAQ, right? Or Russell, like, Yeah. <laughs> S&P is just such a mishmash of basically shit. And, Continents. Um, I, actually, I actually think I, I'm going to go, I, I actually don't know your view on this. I think your view would be 4,000 and I'm going to say two and a half. Um, but I think NASDAQ could go up because I think there's a whole heap of the S&P that's utterly fucked. Um, you just look at the debt levels in some of these companies. I mean, if, if credit spreads start going up again, like I don't know, maybe just the Fed's always there, but like, um, but yeah, I mean, unless obviously if inflation takes off, then yeah, fine. I mean, stocks were going to go up in nominal terms, but um, are, are you I mean, in the 4,000 camp or no? Well, it's not something, it's not a situation. I'm not Tom Lee. I'm not going to be like, oh, well, forget 4,000, 5,000. He blocked me, by the way. I'm so happy he blocked me. It was like my coming in of age on Twitter. There you go. Um, I, I think I think what we're seeing here in general, this is kind of my, you know, my 100,000 foot thesis is we are shifting from a traditional valuation regime where the S&P is going to trade at a PE of between kind of seven and 15. Uh, and, and obviously that's been shifting higher uh, uh, over the last 10 years. I think people need to get used to an S&P that's carrying a 25 to 35 PE. Right. Uh, so it really has nothing to do with the quality of the company. It just had, you know, we, we could have total crap, but it's going to be crap that's valued twice <laughs> as highly uh, as well, look, with uh, NERP around for sorry, not NERP with ZERP around, Zerp, for, yeah. however, who knows? Let's be very clear many years. Um, yeah, 
I totally it's understand. so essentially important for the Fed to keep it. Not only is the market, we talked about it, a matter of national security, and we know China is going to be ramping the crap out of theirs, right? So we're going to have to keep pace. But it's also just with, with the boomers really hitting their full stride here, uh, it's just such an, I mean, for, for basically the last 10 years, if you were a retired boomer, uh, you, you know, you took your distribution at the end of the month and you went out and you spent it. And the next month you came back and you're like, oh, wow, the, the balance was replenished. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> you know, this thing just keeps filling itself back up. So when you, when you realize that, think about how much discretionary spending the market has funded over the last decade. We are going, especially now where we have, uh, we're looking at a future where consumers are, you know, they've obviously retrenched when things are shut down. But there's a lot of smart people who think that there's going to be a permanent shift here where people are just going to be going out less. Um, so more than ever, we're really going to be relying on capital gains fueled discretionary spending. So I think, I yeah. think I'm kind of a perma bear at heart and it's taken a, a gut wrenching, uh, you know, um, self-examination to finally kind of realize this is so important to the Fed higher stock prices, that they're really going to stop at nothing. Uh, and, and will we see the occasional 20, 30% drawdown? Yeah, they're going to fall asleep at the wheel occasionally, but they're going to fix it every time very quickly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Oh, I did think of one thing I wanted to briefly touch on. So it was on the thread that you, today when we talked about Bitcoin um, on Twitter, um, that, that there's a lot of um, misinformation out there on quantum computing. Um, it's just interesting, right? So quantum computing is very much a thing in the, I mean, uh, I think Google has the current record of about 55 qubits. Um, and just so people understand the, the way a quantum computer scales, if you go from 55 qubits to 56 qubits, you've doubled the capacity of that computer. Not, you haven't gone up by a linear amount, you've doubled it because it's two to the power of that. So, so if you like start getting to scale. hundreds of qubits, well, actually this is, that's all you really ever need people even talk about thousands of qubits but um what people are forgetting is um you so th this all comes down to can you crack bitcoin right um and, and can you therefore mine it infinitely faster basically than anyone else and then could you destroy the network and all this stuff um but what what people are forgetting is to, to you could actually have this hilarious situation where if you had a computer of well maybe it's thousands of qubits you would need you could probably, uh, you wouldn't just be able to hack Bitcoin, uh, you'd be able to hack all encryption on the entire world, which is all financial transactions, all everything. But the problem is you wouldn't be able to get the information out of the computer. In order to do that, mm -hmm. you need several million error correction qubits, uh, several million, and we're absolutely nowhere near that. So you could have this hilarious situation where inside this quantum computer was the information to literally take down the world's um, encryption system which is just based on factoring large numbers. And the one thing very much proven in quantum computing is Shor's algorithm that allows you to uh, factor large numbers quickly. Um, and um, so it got me thinking, there's this kind of funny thing, which is people always use this as a way to bash Bitcoin, but what they're not thinking of is, well, actually you realize the entire global payment system, all your bank accounts, every transaction, everything will be compromised. And who do you think is gonna update their software first? that basically the roughly one to 200 people that are distributed that work on Bitcoin, the core team, or JP Morgan, Citibank, Swift, all these guys, and they're going to take 10 years to upgrade their infrastructure. 
Um, and they're saying, and that, if I recall correctly, and there was a guy that commented on on the thread there uh, on my tweet. Uh, he, it's something like four thousand qubits, right? Yeah. Before that becomes a real threat. Yes, to just do the calculation, um, and we're at fifty-five qubits right now. But by the way, that could happen yeah. fast, right? You could potentially get to four thousand in a few years. That would be okay. Aggressive, but you then, but. That's to do the calculation. You can't get the information out of the system without having millions of error correction qubits. They're a slightly different type of qubit, but this is where people are. So like I, I mentioned the Scott Aronson interview on um, Lex Friedman shows, he's an absolute complete total and utter world expert on quantum computing. He does go into this in, in detail. It's super interesting. Um, and people just forget that at the end of the day, Bitcoin is governed by software. The software can be written to be quantum resistant. We already know how to do that. So it's just a, another very obvious case. Would that of be, a, would that be a, a fork, a Bitcoin fork? Yes, just, absolutely. Just that would have to be a hard fork, which is always okay. contentious. But if the, the actual value of Bitcoin is based on the network security, so if that was under threat, um, I, I genuinely think at one point it will be the collateral layer of the world. So if you want to prove you own something, it's going to be anchored in the Bitcoin chain. Um, and therefore, why does it have value? Because it, it can protect it and it's the most secure network. Um, so if that security is put under threat, you can bet your bottom dollar. Now, they're not going to make a knee-jerk change, but one of the great thing of altcoins is that there are loads of them who have been looking into quantum-resistant proof-of-work algorithms. Um, so this is what I think what, this is what I think Raul has got a good thing, finger on the pulse on, is like there's just he doesn't necessarily understand everything going on in the digital space, because no one does. There's so, but there's millions of people trying out crap tons of things just like they did with the internet. Um, and yeah, 99% of these things won't work, but that doesn't matter. Um, most businesses online didn't work. In fact, most businesses don't work. <laughs> so I, I think it's fascinating. Um, what, what does that mean that a Bitcoin is worth? Well, I guess that's the quadrillion dollar question. We don't know. But, um, well, real quickly, do you, are you bullish on Ethereum or no? So I do. Uh, so my, um, I have, um, I think I have about between 10 and 20 times more Bitcoin than Ethereum. Okay. So the answer is yes, because I own it. I own some, and if I wasn't bullish, I would sell it. But it's very small compared to Bitcoin. Um, I mean, it, it has been slaughtered many times over compared to Bitcoin. Uh, so sure. I just I, 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 I've built on Ethereum. I, um, it, it is... It, <laughs> It's one of those things where it's super clever, but it's it's a bit of a nightmare to develop on. But people get workarounds, and Ethereum 2.0 has meant to come out, and it's taking time, and it's going to be an absolute nightmare converting people and migrating. But but they'll get through it. Um, I don't think there's really out of the other like Ethereum wannabes, uh, whether it be an EOS or Cardano, or there's a whole bunch of them, right? There are very few actual developers working on those in reality. Um, organically working on them. Um, so someone might pay someone to work on it, but that's a bit different. Um, mm. But the Ethereum chart looks pretty constructive at the moment. Um, it but, does. It's, it's got a, uh, I was actually just looking at it and uh, yeah, it's got a little bit of a cup on handily. So, kind but of what's situation. happened is the, a lot of the altcoins have been moving recently and some haven't, some have. And then often you then get Ethereum moving and then Bitcoin. Well, sometimes it's the opposite way around the cycle, but now you've had the halving on Bitcoin, like normally about nine months after you get a, a ramp in it. Um, again, it doesn't 
necessarily mean this will happen this time. Uh, but um, when there's certainly movement in this altcoin space at the moment, and that tends to mean you know, it kind of goes in waves, then it will go through Ethereum and then to Bitcoin. But most people who are yeah, trading I mean, altcoins are ultimately stacking Bitcoin. That's what you need to do. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it looks to me like Ethereum can get to 350 fairly easily. Uh, I, as I said, you know, I, I, I understand the very, very basic uh, aspects of crypto, but but I'm trying to educate myself a little bit more. But uh, yeah, it, it looks good for a trade. You know, one um, way to understand it is um, if we want to make the comparison that Bitcoin is like gold and that it's a, let's just say it's a store of value. I'm, I'm well aware it's volatile um, and it's limited in quantity. Um, and, you know, and they do share quite a lot of properties. They obviously don't share some properties, but I've said this for a long time and I've noticed where all started saying it a few months ago too, that like Ethereum is like uh, silver because people always used to say right. Litecoin is like silver to Bitcoin's gold. And this made no sense whatsoever because silver to your point earlier is an industrial metal. That's its primary use. Central banks are not stacking silver. Like they're just not um, in any appreciable amount. And, but Ethereum actually is much more like an industrial, you know, it's an industrial blockchain for actually like doing computing distributed computing um so absolutely has value it's an incredibly hard asset to value in terms of fundamentals in many ways bitcoin's easier if you just compare it to gold do the math and you can work out well sure bitcoins could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars each it's plausible i think yeah, no, I've, I've seen very yeah it, it's certainly logical um I, I you know in my my own trading accounts uh you know we own uh, uh a little, a little bit of Ethereum. Uh, I guess we have about a three percent position in Bitcoin, and I, and I did nibble okay, so a little bit decent, on that. That's decent position. That's like yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, given my thesis uh, that, that I've really had now for you know, ten months or so, um, you know, we went. I guess we went into Quad Three there in, in Q4 of last year, right? So I was kind of already looking for that that big ramp in commodity prices, and obviously, we didn't get it. But um, just being uh, very bearish in the dollar longer term, it, 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 it makes sense to own viable assets priced in dollars. So I even bought, I have a tiny little bit of Litecoin as well. Um, and I really know nothing about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's a fork of Bitcoin, right? So, um, yeah, uh, that has some very passionate defenders. So I, w I won't go into it too much, but yeah. If it's a small amount, fair enough. It can move a lot, by the way. So Litecoin used to lead Bitcoin. It used to be, because um, it has its halvings before Bitcoin, because it was um, it, it, it was basically getting through the blocks a bit faster. Um, and um, But I think since you had the forks with Bitcoin Cash and that, that then forked, like, seems pretty clear to me Litecoin's getting a bit less attention. And those forks now have basically been pretty much, they're pretty much dead. Um, Again, there's plenty of passionate people that would disagree, but that's because they own a lot of it. So um, <laughs> there's no space where people shill better than uh, the crypto space. But to be honest, it's no different in um, traditional markets. And um, yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is that you, you know, I feel like millennials, millennials kind of shunned traditional asset markets because of 2008. They, they, you know, they kind of said, this is all corrupt. And then, you know, crypto became their thing. Um, and, and now they're, now they're piling into traditional markets again. So it's like the whole thing has come full circle. Um, and you've got, 
you've got the older generations are kind of scrambling to learn more and more about crypto. But um, yeah, I mean, with the, and I, it kind of would be ironic, wouldn't it, if it was this COVID shutdown and, you know, uh, unemployment or, or stimulus check that got, that turned millennials on to, uh, to traditional asset markets. It, it certainly seems, I mean, maybe it was a combination of that and Portnoy, um, but it's sort of ironic that it took something like this to get them interested. Right. But then to your point, if it slows down or there's another game in town, uh, whether it's SLV, you because know, they're not going to be trading futures, but at the end of the day, you can trade SLV or GLD, right? So if there's... Um, I can't wait to see the, the Robinson tracker. See it as a, hey, if Portnoy's like, no, you should be buying silver. This is the thing. I'm a god. I'm a genius. And but he's a ridiculously smart guy. He's built a business worth $400 oh, yeah, million. Absolutely. Like massive respect for him. I think people that bash him... I always ask them, have you actually watched his streams? And almost everyone says no. I'm like, I said, his Scrabble stream was utterly wonderful entertainment. Seeing so you can get more and more frustrated by not being able to pick out three letters that made a ticker that was liquid. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, and he, yeah, I do think he's I, a marketing I think genius. Like, so, you know. Well, he's also, he's, he's a professional troll in this context. And I think you got a lot of, um, a lot of the old guard is upset by what he's doing because yes. in effect it's like pulling back the veil it's like you know i i've been i've been acting all pompous and brilliant for the last 30 years because i've mastered wall street and now and now i'm being exposed that it's just not that difficult <laughs> just by the dip uh so it's almost <laughs> like it's almost like they're being uh they're being stripped naked here i think that's one of the reasons you see a lot of resentment but i i listen i'm all for demo democratization uh, of the markets. I mean, as you touched on at the very beginning of, the, of the, the podcast here, yeah, I do have one of my longer term goals is kind of to make, uh, to educate the 99% uh, about this stuff, because it's really, you know, it's really going to be important for, for people that have less purchasing power to protect that purchasing power. So um, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for what he's doing, and I certainly do enjoy a good chuckle here and there watching the, uh, the old guard uh, get their panties in a bunch. <laughs> all right, that's a good place to end, I think. Perfect ending. So, so how can people find oh, out yeah. more about you and your stuff? So, Yeah, I mean, the best, the best way to go about it, I mean, the, the Apollo Trading Club is uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of an amorphous work in progress. Uh, we do have an, it is an investment club. Uh, and we do have uh, a pooled uh, brokerage account where we you know, pretty much just put on whatever trades look good to us. Um, and that actually at the moment is limited to uh, family and friends only. Um, but yeah. the, general, the general idea longer term uh, will be number one, to hopefully launch a, uh, an actual uh, you know, SEC registered fund, a, a real full-blown fund. But also a lot of the, what I'm going to be spending time on is, uh, is the educational component. So uh, it, we're going to be doing seminars in the San Diego area. I mean, maybe down the road, if, it, if, it, you know, if I get some traction, I'll be traveling and doing them as well. But uh, I would say a major portion, the most important portion of what we're doing with the Apollo Trading Club is, is about education and you know, making traders out of anyone. Uh, anyone can do it, as you know, uh, and we want... Uh, you know, so many people are so intimidated by this and there's no reason to be. Uh, and we really want to equip people with the knowledge they need to protect their purchasing power. So uh, if you want to reach out 
for more information or to chat, uh, it's apollotradingclub at gmail.com. Great. And also, um, and uh, uh, Tim's uh, Twitter is at ApolloTradingSD. He's very active um, and very candid on it. So I've learned a lot from following him too. So um, good stuff. Well, look, I'd love to get you on again at some point in the future. And um, um, I know it's been long, but I think it's been pretty free flowing. So thanks again for your time, Tim. Thank you very much, sir.